Okay, good evening, and thank you very much for having me here tonight. Um, it's, uh, it's, in, it's, it's actually very nice to be at a place where uh, Gerard, who's one of my colleagues for many years, is here tonight. Um, and there's at least uh, two paralita here tonight, um, one of which uh, was my neighbor for many years and I haven't seen in 20 years, and the other one is Paul, who went to the same school that I went to. So... Uh, Thank you very much for having me here tonight. Okay, so um, when I spoke to Paul initially, I said, what, are we, what am I going to talk about tonight? I said, well, let's, uh, let's look at the energy outlook for South Africa for the next um, 20, 30 years. <coughs> and um, I realized this is such a big topic. I'm going I'm to trim it down to just look at the electricity part of the energy, because otherwise you won't get rid of me and that, that you don't want. So I've basically put together an outline of, of, of 10 um, things to look at. Where we are today, um, what are our challenges, what do we think is the right place to go to, what are the options that we can uh, look at to go to that, um, and to get some sort of a conclusion then. So where are we today? Um, I'll have to move a little bit so I'm not in front of the screen. That's where we are today, or 2010, but that's what's the start of, of looking at the future. So 88% of our energy is, is uh, coal, um, and we have about 40 gigawatt capacity all in all, which doesn't sound too bad. Um, 35 of that coal, some nuclear, some gas, and most of this gas is relatively new and for peaking. Um, and that's where we were in 2010 when we started looking at, at the South African energy setup. However, of that 40, close to 40, um, since 2000, and the graph starts before that, but since 2000, we've slowly every year, there's been one or two better years, but we've generally been reducing the availability of plant every year. Until in 2014 now, we're sitting at about 77% availability. Um, Apparently, it's going to drop one more year, and that's quite a substantial drop, and then some magic is going to happen, and things are going to start getting better. Um, which I think, you know, we all hope it happens. Um, I remember actually when you mentioned the soldiers now, in 2005, we had the, about this time of the year, I think it was, right, when we had the inauguration of SALT. Um, and, and the day after that, there was a big function at the Biotel in Camps Bay. Um, and I had to prepare something to say, but I hadn't, didn't really have a chance to, to sort of get into it. So I had some notes, and I had a laptop. And that evening, the power failed. So as I stood there in front of everybody, there was no power. Of course, everybody could hear you, but I had, I, my laptop didn't work, and I had to have some candles to, uh, to see what was going on. So that was 2005. That was really when stuff started happening. Um, and then, you know, then we still had sort of 87, 88% availability. So we're quite substantially down on that today. Um, interestingly, at the same time that we, that we are losing this availability, the prices are just going up. So um, tariffs have trebled since 2007. It was fairly, it actually, in real terms, it actually came down for a couple of years. But since 2007, it's been trebled. And... You know, where, where is all of this going to, one can ask. Um, 
What the, the, com the combined effect of, of lack of availability uh, and trebling of prices have led to this interesting curve, which is um, maybe has too much detail. But if you look at the red part of it, that's the annual consumption of electricity or demand of electricity for 2007. If you look at the red curve, that's the demand so far in this year. It's seven years later, our demand is less than what it was in 2007, which is quite astounding. I mean, this country is growing. We, have, we want to go places. We want to give electricity to everybody. But in fact, our demand uh, is less now than what it was in 2007. But it's one of those chicken and egg things. If there isn't electricity available, it doesn't help if you demand more. So this is really there's a, there's a very strong constraint on, on where we are today. So, if I can summarize it, and, um, and some of these look a bit harsh, so I'm quoting Anton Eberhardt here. Um, we're probably sitting at the worst electricity situation in 40 years. We've had power shortages now on and off, um, and I think two weeks ago we all thought, oh, well, it's happening again with this uh, coal silo at Matimba, but it seemed to have, to have uh, survived that. Um, the new power stations are late. They're considerably more expensive than what everybody thought they would be. Um, but there's some scary things here. Over the past four years, ESCOMs have lost the equivalent of an, of an entire coal power station through deterioration of availability. Um, of 87 units, 32 require major surgery, and three are in a critical condition. So, of course, we're using more and more gas, although the, 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 they were peaking plants, but these peaking plants are, are running just about all the time, uh, and, they, and they're quite expensive. And with that, we're also at a point where the distribution capability is close to its limit. Um, so even if you just put stuff onto the, onto the grid, the grid is not able to, to necessarily handle that. Okay, so that's where we are today. Uh, where are we going in the next five years? Uh, this is the reserve margin. In ESCOM, and it's sort of good practice, is to say uh, we have 15% reserve margin. You can see that for the past, and it only goes back to 2007, but for the past 2007, uh, what is it, uh, seven years, we haven't had the targeted reserve margin. We, we would have had it if, um, if everything was on time, but we should have it again um, for the next three years. And then after that, if the demand goes up the way it should, we're again not going to have that reserve margin. The reason why the reserve margin is not in place yet, um, Madupi, uh, the first unit, it's not as if Madupi is completely online, but by in the second quarter of, of next year, Madupi's first unit should be online. And the second unit should come online by the fourth quarter of 2017. Um, and then you can see Kusili coming online 2016, first unit, second unit, fourth quarter 2017 as well. So it's still going to be a while before those things are really online. And then Ingula um, uh, seem to be on track, and I think that will also make quite a big difference. But this is essentially the reason why we don't have the, the margin today that, we, that we're supposed to have. Uh, and if we look at the electricity price increases that go with that uh, for the next five years, here on the right, 13% for the next three years, um, being that's what's going to be, and then 8% is an is a, is a estimate for after that. But of course, those are fairly substantially higher than, 
than any inflationary increase. Um, and if you, if you take those increases and, and turn that into actual rands and cents, then by 2018-19 we're going to be paying, or the basic uh, tariff is going to be around 12 cents, up from, what was that, 19 cents in 2004. A fairly uh, substantial increase, and I don't know many people, if any, whose salary has done that sort of uh, climb in the last 10 years. Okay, so this is an interesting curve. This is, this is part of a longer curve. Uh, of the demand forecast, it goes quite a couple of years into the future, but I'm just looking at this for the next five, six years. And you can see the, the CSIR has done a lot of studies, uh, and those are basically these, these three are CSIR studies. Um, the system operator itself has done those studies at the top. So according to all of these guys, we should be sitting somewhere here today. But this is actually the demand. And this demand is based on the actual ability of, of, of our generation capacity today. It's not as if we don't have the demand, it's just that you can't demand what's not there. So all of this paints a fairly um, challenging picture. And the answer to this challenging picture is this. It is the Integrated Resource Plan, which was first published in 2010, um, and has been um, reworked and modified a little bit in between, but it hasn't officially been issued since 2010. So the 2010 IRP is still the official one. And this is what it says. It says we're going to build 42 gigawatts of new capacity by 2030. Um, remembering that we have just under 40 at the moment. So this is doubling up of our capacity by 2040. The assumptions in there is that they're using the CSR green shoots forecast, which is, if you go back to the previous picture, um, the green shoots, I think, is this one year. So it's lower than the ESCOM forecast, but it is, it's, a, it's a substantial climb um, going forward. So it's based on that. Uh, it's based on a CO2 cap. It's based on rolling out renewables at a rate of one gigawatt a year. Uh, and it's based on the assumption that nuclear will cost about 56 to 57 rands per watt, which translates to about, well, there's too many units in there, but about 5,500 uh, US dollars per kilowatt. And the makeup of this new 42.5 gigawatts, um, as you can see there, 15% coal, 15% um, uh, gas, 22% nuclear, uh, a bit of hydro, six, um, and then quite a substantial amount of renewable energy. And admittedly, the colors are a little bit different from when I saw it last time. Although that is green, yeah. Okay, so let's look at what the options are. Um, coal, and you've just seen where we are with with new build coal, although it's not new coal under this plan, because if you add Madupi and Kusili together, it's already more than that, so that's more new coal. Um, and the plan at this stage is to do a substantial amount of that coal as, as an IPP type setup, the way that the renewable energy is, is going at the moment. So independent power producer looking to, to us, to, to, to the private industry to, to develop those, those coal stations. Um, 
they are willing to, in, to, to, to look at imported coal power as well. Um, so two and a half gigs was, was announced in 2012. Uh, earlier this year, they looked for project registration, which is not compulsory. You don't have to have registered to be able to take part in it, but it was really a trying to test interest. Um, and you can see fantastic interest, 85 respondents. Um, and, and some of those respondents, very, very mature, very uh, good stuff. Based on the REIPP process, um, so there will be multiple bidding windows. Um, it's a competitive process. The tariff is cheapest is going to win, but there will be some other measurements, and I'll look at that. Maximum project size, 600 megawatts, um, which is relatively small in the coal world, but quite big compared to the renewable energy world. 30-year power purchase agreement, um, very important is that South African RAND-based tariff, uh, CPI index, um, and last time I looked, the target was still that the RFP for that would be out before the end of this year. Uh, the end of the year is quite close, so I'm not convinced of that. There's quite a few other things that must still happen, but maybe early next year. Um, and I do think that IPP is a way to go, and we can, we'll talk about IPP a little bit, little bit later. If you look at gas, uh, somebody in Pretoria came up with this wonderful acronym, um, which I'm not sure works for me, but anyway. Um, and, and there's some nice bureaucratic words about what it is about. But the idea is that it would be commercially based as well. Uh, there would be an IPP component to it, although it wouldn't be all IPP. Important key, that second bullet, market and financial risk will largely be carried by private investors. Um, and I think that is the way to go. That it, there's, there's, there's good sense in that. But government needs to play a facilitating role, which they will do. In the short term, it will be LNG. Um, they're looking at Mozambique. Medium to long term, shale. Fracking is very, very high on the, on the agenda for that. Coal bed, methane, which I don't know much about, but the bits that I do know about it, I don't necessarily like. Um, but shale gas, in terms of this scenario, is going to play a major part. And, yeah, shale gas can really be cheap. Um, nuclear. This is an interesting one. And the National Planning Commission, um, they sort of stated that they support the DOE's updated RRP in a very cautious manner. Um, and maybe there's stuff to read in there, which I don't know what they are. So, what they're saying is that if the electricity demand stays lower, which I don't think it will, as soon as, as, soon as you uncap this bottle, it's going to overflow. Um, and if nuclear prices are above $6,500, then nuclear is not the best option. That's what the review of this plan is saying at the moment. Now, keeping in mind that the IRP base case is based on $5,500, so they're already saying, okay, well, we'll relax it up to $6,500. However, the latest nuclear plant in the UK was finished at over $8,000. Uh, and a Russian plant in Hungary was finished at over $7,000. So I think we will probably never see $5,500 again from any direction. Um, so it's, 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 it's an expensive setup. Um, but whichever way you look at it, the RP 2010 schedule for, for nuclear is not feasible. In that schedule, 
the idea was that nuclear would be starting to produce power by 2023. You don't do nuclear in that time span. It's already the end of 2014. It's for all practical purposes 2015. There's, I don't think anyway that nuclear is going to produce anything um, by 2023. And I think if you look at the demand, the demand is relatively immediate. The response from nuclear is relatively long-term. Um, and one of the challenges with nuclear is that it is really an extremely, the fuel cost is relatively low, but the capex is huge. So the capex is huge and it's very long-term, which means that two really difficult things that get hold of you there. The one is political instability because this government might like it and the next one might not like it. And you see it all over the world where things get built for four years, five years, and they stop for four or five years. And then they start again. Um, in the economic viability of going to borrow that amount of money and getting that financed um, while the world is going to all kinds of interesting places economically, it's a, it's a tricky one. The point is there is no nuclear IPP anywhere in the world. Every nuclear station so far, so far has been backed by government. Um, and it's a, it's a juggernaut of a solution to an answer that maybe to a question that's not asking that. Um, okay, so then we get to renewables. And I'm trying to be objective here tonight, not pushing one versus the other, but I'm, I've got a few more slides of renewables than the rest because it's something that has actually started working in, in terms of the RIPP. So if you go back to this pie, those three slices on the left, that's renewable, 17.8 gigawatts. And that's fantastic. I mean, that's, that's not a small amount of, of capacity. That's a, that's a huge amount of capacity. The way it's been done, um, it's one gigawatt per year. And the one gigawatt per year comes from an interesting history where when it was launched, I mean, for many years, and some of you will, will, be, will have been part of the system, it was looked, look, we, the government was looking at a feed-in tariff in, in the way that Europe is looking at feed-in tariff. And eventually they decided, no, we're not going to do feed-in tariff, we're going to do free market tender process, but we do need to cover ourselves for in case the stuff really comes out very expensive because they've committed to doing it. So they said, okay, we're going to cap it at one gigawatt a year, which made sense in the beginning. I think at this point it probably makes sense to just open up that cap, but I'll get to that now. So phase one, 3.7 gigs, um, a competitive bidding process, the bidders have to develop the projects, and once a project is fully developed and you've paid all the lawyers' fees and all the bankers' fees, and I don't know how many lawyers and bankers are here tonight, but that's really, if you want to make money in life, then lawyers and bankers, they're the chaps who make the money with no risk. It's not the engineers. Um, and, and then you get a power purchase agreement, and then you can go ahead. So the three windows have been completed. Window one is generally in operation today. Um, a specific example that's not is, is one of ours at Malmesbury, Swartland, which we com completed the PV plant in May, uh, and ESCOM has delayed the grid connection by about a year to 31st of June next year. Um, and, and it's quite a long process, but if you can prove to ESCOM that it's not your fault that is delayed, and it's quite difficult to prove that. But if you can prove to them it's not your fault that it's delayed, then they have to pay the owner of that project deemed energy supply. And I think you might have read in the, some newspaper recently, ESCOM is paying about 2 million rands a month to this project developer 
as deemed energy. So they're not getting anything for it, but they have to pay. The problem is if they're not paying it, then we as EPC contractor have to pay it. So it's a, it's a tricky business. Uh, phase two, sort of the same amount of gigs, again in three rounds. First round of that is, 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 is happening, round four. Round five planned for mid-2015, or Windows 6 is not committed yet, and then phase three and onwards to be announced. The biggest risk we're sitting with in terms of REIPP today is grid. Um, it's really, really quick and easy to build a PV plant, and it's relatively quick and easy to build a wind farm. But if you do that and you cannot tie into the grid, you cannot supply that electricity, you cannot sell it, and you cannot use it, and you're really stuck. And the grid is overloaded, um, and a lot of the money that was initially planned to be to have gone into the grid has gone into Madupi and Kusili. Okay, so interesting picture this one, and quite a tough picture. Um, these are the first three rounds of the RIPP. So what they did in round one is they went out and they tended the whole, the whole batch. Um, and it was, it was, uh, it was a Villavesta. Nobody had any idea what would, what would happen. Would there be bids, would there not be bids? In the end, the bids were nearly 60% subscribed. Um, there were 53 of them. The paperwork is onerous. 28 of the 53 managed to tick all the boxes. And those 28, they all won something, which means if you ended in a bid, you had a 53% chance of winning. By round three, of the 1.5 gig that was available for, for bid, six was actually bid. And in the process, 93 people, 93 bids were actually lodged. And these numbers aren't out there, but it cost, I would guess, somewhere between 5 million and 10 million rands to prepare a bid. And maybe more in some cases. So, uh, some people say 10 is conservative. Just times it by 10 and see what it actually cost in round 3 to bid. You can see the, qual the number of people qualifying is steadily rising, so people are starting to understand the onerous paperwork. But of the 93 people that bid, 17 actually won. And quite a few of... And, and, and the landscape has really changed, because in round one, those 28 were startup companies, they were people getting into this new thing. By the time that you got to round three, there were one or two European utilities that were taking the lion's share of that. So your chances of winning something has gone down from 53% to 18%. Um, and if you analyze it a little bit further, your chance of winning a wind project in round four was about 20%. Chance of winning a, so a solar project in round four was about 10%. So it's not quite at the lottery sort of level of probability yet, but it's really at the point where you need to say, geez, you know, is it, how much money can I invest with a 10% chance of, of winning? Because you really need to to go through the whole process to get to that point. What is really interesting is that the IRP says, um, and I don't have all of the facts behind it, but the IRP says that this is what they're going to do in terms of REIPP, the black line. So by 2030, uh, 8.4 gigs of PV, which is a good, healthy amount. They're saying that other than REIPP, there's going to be nearly 22 gigs of, of non-REIPP, meaning non-ESCOM, um, rooftops, your own free field, self-consumption, 
and so on. And this will be made up like this. Um, so in this pie, that's REIPP. Only 21% of it. All of this is commercial and industrial. Um, this is utility scale, non-REIPP, and 16.8 residential deployment. So if this is even off to, this is a fantastic business opportunity. I mean, this is a, a huge amount of gigawatts that we're talking about here. Um, and if it's not REIPP, and you don't have to tie into the grid, and it's only for self-consumption, you can do this really quickly, really easily. Um, so there's a market opportunity if you've seen anything um, in terms of market. Now, why is South Africa so well-suited to, to solar? Um, and this is a map of solar radiation of the world. And what is really, normally green is good and red is bad, but this is the other way around. Red is really good, yeah. No, the redder it is, the better it is. The whole renewable industry in terms of PV really sort of started there where it's, where it's green. I mean, you don't even find that greenness, yeah. And Durban is sort of the worst radiation we have. So if you look at that, Africa is, is the place to be in terms of PV. Um, Southern Africa, Southern Sahara, Northern Africa, around the equator, you're sitting with too much humidity in the air and there's a lot of absorption happening. But if you can, anywhere else in Africa is perfect. Most of Australia is pretty good, except not where the people live, but where the people don't live, it's pretty good. Um, Chile is astounding. Chile is the top of the, top of the pops. Um, and that's the Atacama Desert, which is... So the sun shines all of the time, but you're also really high. So there's no water vapor in the air, and it is, uh, it's also a fantastic place to build a telescope. And then the Middle East is also pretty good. So you can build a PV plant in any of these dark red places, and you don't need one cent of subsidy. But if you want to build a PV plant in the green parts of the world, you need a subsidy, otherwise it doesn't work. I mean, look at the UK. Um, it's not even green, it's blue. And <laughs> actually, there's a lovely picture, which I didn't include tonight, which is a picture of a before site of a PV plant in the UK, and there's some swans swimming on the site. Um, it's a dam, and, and they, <laughs> they pull a PV plant on that. And if you can't do that with, without a government incentive. So this is a bit closer, and the scale is not completely the same, so you can see some blue bits here, but actually it's not blue compared to to Europe, it's still, it's still pretty good. If you look at the radiation there, it's still 1,600 uh, per year. So it's quite obvious why most of the PV farms are, are, are there and why the Uppington Airport is so busy nowadays um, and why when you go to the Uppington Airport, you hear Spanish and German and all kinds of languages uh, and not so much uh, Afrikaans anymore. But there's also a couple of PV farms here, and as a matter of fact, anything on this scale, above 2,000 is pretty good, and you can make a good business case out of that. So, in South Africa, you can build a PV farm with zero subsidy. Um, and I think that's, that's something that um, a lot of, I think the perception out there is still that, yeah, it's, it's beautiful, all this REIPP and the renewable energy and so on, but, shoot, it's costing us taxpayers a lot of money. It's not. It's completely uh, um, privately financed. It's 85% financed by the banks. 
Um, and it's not, not costing government a cent, and all it does is ESCOM has a PPA and, they have to, and they're paying for the, for the power. Um, the other part of why PV farms are working so well commercially at this point is this beautiful graph. Um, and this, but difficult to read, but you can read the important bit there at the top. The shape of the graph is the important thing. This is the price of PV modules over the last, uh, what would that be, 40 years? So it came down from 76.6 US dollars per watt to less than 0.6 dollars per US watt. We're paying 58 cents, 57 cents around the uh, US cents per watt at this point. Um, this is a sort of, it's, it's a Moore's Law sort of curve. It's a, it's a cell phone cost curve. It's, a, it's, a, it's a really a curve that enables things to happen which previously were just not possible. Um, and I'm really hoping that in terms of, of, of battery storage, we're going we're gonna to see something like this happening uh, at some point. Everybody's been waiting for that for a long time. So, so this curve, combined with this fantastic radiation we have in this country, says PV in, in, in South Africa, and in most of Africa, um, is really an option which one mustn't underestimate. Okay, but that's enough of the exciting energy stuff. The IPP itself um, is interesting, and it's been a process of learning, I think. Um, but the way the REIPP has been structured is that if you hand in a bid, you get measured on two things. You can measure it on price, and you can measure it on economic development. Price counts for 70%, economic development for 30%. And you can, to some extent, trade off the one for the other. And you can see the seven categories under economic development. Um, and the way economic development works now, in round one there were specific targets, and in round three, whoever had the most, that was the target for the rest. So that set the, set the, 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 the bar. But you can see it's really um, a detailed process. It's a process which delivered so much paperwork over the last few years, the Department of Energy was not nearly able to, to, to control that and to audit that, so they've now uh, employed external auditors to assist in the, in the economic development measurement. And economic development is the one thing on a project which allows a DOE to cancel the contract. If you're not meeting the targets that you said you would, they can cancel the contract. So it's really serious, you have to do that. Although there's a, there's, a, there's a call out there to say, well, maybe the 70-30 should change around to 30-70. Because until that happens, this will always be an add-on to that and not the other way around. The bidding tariff, um, based on a lot of things, and obviously the solar module is a, is a key component of, of how much it costs to build a PV farm, because it's about half of the total cost. But the way you finance it is also a key thing. And for many years, ESCOM had a huge advantage because they had a really good credit rating and they could finance things really cheaply. And there wasn't a way you could do project finance competing with ESCOM in terms of finance rates. Uh, ESCOM doesn't have that big advantage anymore, but most of the projects, round one and two were all project finance. But round three, when the other European utilities came on board, they came with balance sheet financing and it really became tricky to try and compete with them. So, it's uh, getting the prices to where they are has been, has been very challenging. 
So that's one part of IPP. This is a picture which I think any engineer should look at for a while, because this is why there's so many lawyers involved in the IPP process, and this will hold for whether it's renewable energy IPP, coal IPP, gas IPP. In this picture, the blue designate the major parties. Um, the green are the advisors, and then the, the what would be red, maroon, the agreements. So there are seven parties involved in any one of these things. Seven major parties involved. Um, there are at least four, mostly five advisors involved, and there are ten agreements to be signed. And you need you to get the big law firms involved to do this. It's part of the game. Um, so the Department of Energy is obviously key. You have an implementation agreement with them. ESCOM is key, but ESCOM is not one entity. ESCOM in this setup is two entities. There's ESCOM single buyer's office, and there's an ESCOM grid access unit. And you have to have an independent engineer which gets appointed um, and paid for by the project company, but they advise ESCOM. Then obviously you have the lenders, the bankers, but the bankers cannot do technical things, so they appoint technical advisors, and they cannot do legal things, so they appoint legal advisors. But these two entities, the lenders' advisors and the, and the, uh, the technical advisors and the legal advisors, don't get paid by the lenders. They get paid by the project company. So this is a horrible contracting model, where you appoint somebody to work for you, but you don't pay the bills that these people send to you. You pass it on to the other people that want the money from you in the first place. So, I mean, what's the incentive on the lenders to say to the lawyers, now get this done quickly, or get this done cost-effectively? There's no incentive, because the bill is going there, the bill is not going there. It's a, um, yeah, it's a complicated picture. Now, Typically, the EPC and O&M contractor has to sign an EPC contract, and in the current model, he also has to take operation and maintenance responsibility for at least the first three years, most probably the first five years. So he has to sign both of those contracts. But there are also these, and he signs that with the project company. There are also direct agreements where the bank is a party to that, so that if for some reason this EPC contractor doesn't perform, the bank can take the contract away and take whatever they need out of it and get somebody else to do it. So the reason why in all of this the EPC contractor sits at the bottom is because essentially all of the risk and all of the troubles just flow down to the bottom. Um, and, and that's where you have to, to capture that. So of, of the renewable energy program in South Africa, this is the most complicated picture. The actual technical part, the actual engineering part, when you get to do that, that's fantastic. You can relax and you can really enjoy that. Because this is the, this is the bit where, um, where the most time and energy and, uh, and sometimes wasted energy is spent. Okay, so, um, to conclude. Um, well, first looking at the RAPP. Interestingly enough, within... Three years, four years, South Africa has come from nowhere 
to really a central position globally in terms of how does one do renewable energy competitively. Um, and I'm not sure what that process was or who caused the feed-in tariff to be abandoned, but it's probably the best thing that could have happened. I think lots of people were waiting for feed-in tariff for a long time and saying this is what needs to happen. And when it was cancelled, lots of people had to change their minds, change their plans, do something else. But in the end, it really served the purpose of getting cheap renewable energy into the country. So um, it made sense. In less than three years, 120 billion rand has been committed to renewables. And there's not government money and it's not taxpayers' money. It's private money, it's banks, it's financially, economically backed. 64 projects, mainly wind and PV, few of the uh, um, small hydro and, and biomass and so on, uh, nearly four gigs, more than 100 shareholder entities, um, uh, lots of community trust, lots of, there's been lots of economic development that's taken place. 86% of the finance raised locally, uh, two-thirds of the debts from commercial banks, and look at this, the price, PV prices dropped 68% in this period, down to 88 cents. In, um, this is in 2001 baseline, because 2001 is when the round one baseline sits. So today, this equates to about 99 cents. But new coal, anybody's guess is what new coal is, but um, I think the most conservative number for new coal, i.e. what we're going to pay for Dupi and Kusili, is about nine, uh, 1 rand 10 cents. And, uh, and it varies from 110 to 136. This is sitting at 99 cents. Uh, wind is sitting at 74 cents. So within three rounds and three years, renewables have gone from a thing where everybody said, well, that's really nice and it's what we should do, but it's so expensive and it'd be nice if we could do it, to something which really makes commercial sense and, and you can't afford not to do it. Job creation, um, very interesting one, and very interesting in South African context, because if you show this in a European context or an American context, job creation is not a big thing. Job creation looks like money, looks like cost. Here, job creation and economic development is a key thing. And solar PV is far ahead in terms of job creation on a jobs per, per megawatt basis. Um, but there's... there's Good jobs to be created along, all along. This, I think, is a key graph, and one can argue about some of the numbers, but I think it's not too far um, from the truth. So looking at this pie chart again, this is where we want to go in 2030, IRP. And these are around three prices, around four prices are even lower in some cases. So if you say new coal... Madupe Kusili is sitting around about there, uh, and I think this sits about 120. So cheaper than that is solar PV, is natural gas turbine, it's wind turbine, and of course the current infrastructure that's already there and paid off. Pump storage, um, not too far off. Actually, depending on how you look at this, this could even be a little bit cheaper, because some of these things are rated at 25, 30-year lives. Generally, pump storage, you're looking at 50-year, even longer life. So if you take the capital over a longer period, then it drops a bit. Nuclear, um, 
the cost is, is hard to, to get a reliable number, and I've put a very conservative number there. Concentrated solar, quite expensive. And then these peaking plants that are running on gasified diesel on a per kilowatt hour basis or per megawatt hour basis, by far the most expensive thing you can do today. But what it tells you is that of this pie chart of where we want to go, that's cheaper than new coal, that's cheaper than new coal, um, and if we use the right type of gas, that's cheaper than new coal. So it's not a bad picture from, from where we're going in terms of cost. Um, you could certainly do, do worse than that. So I think there's no doubt that our current position in terms of, of our electric generation and availability and where our prices are going is, is dire. It really is, uh, is not a good place to be. Although what is interesting is we're quoting on a project in Burundi at the moment. Um, just to put things in perspective. In South Africa, we are about 40 million 50 million people, give or take. 50 million people, 40 gigawatts of electricity, and we're saying we're really struggling to, to work with that. In Burundi, there are 11 million people, so it's about 20% uh, of what we have, and there's 100 megawatts of power. 100 megawatts, that's it. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable. 100 megawatts is something, uh, I'm sure there must be, you know, some local oaks who do 100 megawatts on their farms. It's, it's, it's quite incredible. And, and I mean, that, looks, that works for the whole of Africa. If you look at the power consumption, electricity co consumption per capita in the world, South Africa sits far down, um, number 60. Round right about there. The next country in Africa on that line, I think, is Namibia. And name power used to be ESCOM um, at number 80, say. And then it just drops down. And the whole rest of Africa sits right at the bottom. So everything in perspective, yes, our current electricity position is dire. But in the African context, it's still pretty good. Um, IRP 2010, I think you can criticize it. Um, there's good things about it, there's bad things about it. In general, I think it's pretty good. The reviews that's happened since 2010 um, are good reviews, and for some reason, RP is not getting republished. I'm not sure why. Um, because what is interesting, if you look at the review of the RP 2010, is that it's really taking the emphasis off nuclear in the reviews. But if you look at what government's doing at the moment, it's trying to put the emphasis on nuclear sort of to try and use IRP 2010 while it's still there. Um, obviously, there's some other things that work. The independent power producer model, I think, works fantastic. It's, uh, it's tough. It's really tough if you're inside of it. But from a consumer point of view, from an average South African using power point of view, the IPP is the way to go. And the IPP model, in some way or another, will be adapted, adopted and used by coal and gas as well. Nuclear. As I said, very capital intensive up front. Fuel cost is cheap, and that's why over the whole life, it's not a bad bargain in terms of the cost per kilowatt or megawatt hour. But if you look at the fact that most of that cost is up front, you have to finance it, um, and how you finance it makes a big thing, then I think the, the right answer for nuclear, I don't know what the right answer is, but maybe the, the, the most 
prudent thing at this point is to say, let's just wait before we start spending money on, uh, on nuclear. The REIPP model, very successful. Renewables is now cheaper than new build coal, and I don't think anybody would have thought that two years ago, even a year ago. Um, it's very quick to roll out. It's very easy to finance. You finance it privately with banks. Um, biggest stumbling block there is a grid. I didn't talk about large-scale storage or any storage at this point because that's a topic all of its own. Um, but it's absolutely key because the problem in South Africa, up to not so, up to the point where our stuff was actually running, the problem in South Africa was not so much getting more generating power but storing what we can generate. Um, and now it, it's, it's, it's a dual problem, but really if you can, if you can sort out your storage, you've, you've done a lot. Um, so the two enablers for strengthening our electricity position, whether it's renewables, whether it's gas, whether it's whatever, whether it's coal even, is grid capacity um, and affordable storage. If you can get those two things sorted out, then, then our position will be much better. Um, what is interesting and what has really only come to light in the last year or two is that PV has this huge potential outside of the REIPP. Uh, which, which is interesting because it allows the small installer, um, and you don't need to be a massive company with a massive balance sheet with the ability to, 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 to sign performance bonds or, or warranty bonds for, for billions of rands to really get into the game. Um, and if you can combine that with cheaper storage, it's, uh, it's really an answer. So our future outlook definitely be mixed. We'll never see the picture again like we've seen in 2010 where it's 90% coal and a little bit of nuclear and the rest. Um, it really is a mix. I think what we've learned over the last three years since, since the IPP process has started and since IRP 2010 has been published is that stuff gets cheap quickly. Um, and it's probably time now to look at the IRP again and say, okay, well, maybe some things we can accelerate and some things we can decelerate. Because in the end, you just need to serve the, the economy and to grow this as quickly as possible. But if you look at that picture, then without con concerning yourself about greenhouse gases or carbon footprint or anything like that, there's no doubt that renewables and natural gas, cheapest, quickest, simplest options where we are today. And it's so abundant and it's so in our face um, that to go for bigger longer term, more expensive solutions for which we need to go completely offshore um, to come and solve our problems is probably not the way to go. And I think that's it. I thought I'll just show you this picture because if you build a solar farm in Europe, you need to um, get rid of some stuff, you know, where people, sheep, whatever, might have wanted to eat something. Um, <laughs> If you go to the Northern Cape, there's really not that much. And I, I'd love to hear that ratio again, which I knew, but I can never remember because it's such a, an amazing ratio of the m number of hectares per sheep you need in this part of the world. It's not sheep per hectare, it's hectares per sheep. Um, <laughs> is it? Okay. A, a solar farm, you need about one and a half hectares per megawatt. And I don't think you can ever farm that out of a sheep in this part of the world. <laughs> So um, it's probably a good way to go. Okay, that's it as far as the presentation is concerned. Any questions?
Yeah, I think that that's absolutely true. I think there's two parts to that. The one is that we, we live and we still live like Americans in this country. Um, and we should rather try and live like Europeans than Americans because we consume stuff. We, we leave the lights on, we drive, we, we really do. So a part of, of that cutting back has been an energy efficiency part, which I think is absolutely key because energy efficiency is way cheaper than building anything new. And, but once you've done that, and there's still more to do there, once you've done that, the point is that there are industries and mines today that are in fact getting paid by ESCOM not to produce, um, which is sort of scary if you think of it. There was another question. There are two answers to that. Um, in terms of something like the REIPP, which is a national project, um, you need storage. doesn't matter what your mode of generation is. You need storage because your demand is so peaky, so, so uneven. Um, and that I think today still the cheapest storage on a gigawatt hour scale is, is hydro, pump storage. Um, the thing that limits pump storage is there's only so many mountains and so many rivers and so many this and so on. But something like, um, what's that thing called in the Dragensburg now? Zingula, something like that. Um, it is 27 billion rands for about 1.4 gigs. And it's not bad. It's actually not bad in terms of, of storage cost. So the limit there is not so much the money, it is, yes, you must go and find the places, and there needs to be, I think storage needs to be written into the RP in a, in a stronger way. There needs to be more of that. But that serves um, the REIPP part of the curve. I think where storage is really going to explode isn't the right word to use in terms of batteries, but, um, <laughs> but where it will really uh, mushroom. Is, is in terms of domestic commercial industrial, where you've got two or three or five kilowatts on your rooftop, um, and you've got your own storage, which is just efficient. So you've got your house, you're running your water on solar water heating, you're cooking with gas, uh, your lights are all LEDs, and, and you've got a couple of panels on your roof, uh, and some batteries, and you, for 90% of the year, you're in fact, in fact off-grid. And by the time you start adding all of those 3 kilowatt hours or 10 kilowatt hours of storage together, I think that's really where the market for storage is going is to be in South Africa without government intervention, without lenders, without lawyers, without whatever. Um, and Gerard can probably tell you more about where battery prices are going, but I think there's some really interesting developments uh, starting to take place there. Shown, uh 
very dramatic because we increase in the, the PV cost. Yes. What is the potential uh, CSP to, to, to get a cost reduction like that? Sure, that's an interesting question because the CSP cost is quite different. You know, in, the, in a PV form, 50% of the PV form is, is the module. And the module is a silicon, either monocrystal or polycrystal thing, and it's how you manufacture it, how many you manufacture is really, um, in a sense, it's a, it's a one-dimensional problem. Um, if you look at concentrated solar, well, there are many more, many different mechanisms of doing concentrated solar. Um, and I'm not sure that there's one component driving the cost of CSP as much as there's one component driving the PV cost so much. Depending on what you do, whether it's a parabolic thing or a salt or this or that or whatever. Um, but certainly CSP has not shown the same reduction anyway. Um, and it's a pity because CSP comes with a storage component which is, which is worth quite a lot on its own. But I, I can't really tell you if there's, a, if there's a enabler in the CSP thing that's going to really drive the cost down like that. I haven't seen it yet. Uh, do you mind sharing a few words around um, expanding the actual grid capacity, which is clearly the yeah, um, I think what's interesting in South Africa is that we used to have this flow of electricity from Limpopo to Gauteng to Cape Town. Um, and the grid was sort of set up for that. And if you Madupi and Kusili is going to keep on in that stream. Unfortunately, the grid sort of went through the R and through that part of the world. So, so that's where the sun is shining. You can latch onto that. But you can't just... That part of the grid is just not strong enough to add so many gigawatts onto it. So ESCOM, I think, had a fairly well thought out plan of strengthening the grid in the, in the Northern Cape, um, particularly around Uppington, around the R, also to some extent around the, um, not, yeah, the Eastern Cape, where lots of the wind farms are. Um, so the plan is then is really simple. It's not it's not rocket science. It's just a question of putting the money in and doing it. I mean the one the thing that's holding us up at Swartland at the moment is 120 poles need to be planted. You know, <laughs> it's uh, it's as simple as that. So there was a plan. There is a plan, and there was money for the plan, but the money got sidelined. Um, and and there could be potentially a two-year delay on that. Um, and I can understand to some extent why the money gets sidelined because you've invested so, money, so much money in a project, you need to finish a bloody project and create claw. And that's why the money is going there. But in the meantime, you're potentially holding up the whole, the whole RERPP process. So it's not a technical problem. Um, it's a problem of will and of, and of people. <laughs> yeah. Yes. The last time I looked at that was vanadium redox, which I'm pretty sure is the same thing. And there was Johan Beekers at Stellenbosch was was uh, doing a lot of work on that. And I think it was it was an ESCOM position at the time that he was looking at that vanadium. And the whole th idea was vanadium redox was utility scale storage. But I get any Gerard, do you have any? So picking up, um, because it's all about price when it comes to batteries, price per, per kilowatt hour. 
But I think, if, if I understand you correctly, hydrogen fuel cells are used quite widely as well for energy storage, where you actually electrolyze the, the water when you put spare electricity, put it through a hydrogen fuel cell to get the electricity back. But the problem is that that process is about 25% efficient. Um, so in Germany, what they do is they actually, where they've got a lot of abundant um, renewable electricity, is they electrolyze the, the water and they store the hydrogen in their gas grid because they've got a gas network fully the whole country that enriches the gas and actually recuperating the energy through the gas network, not through electricity. Um, but, yeah. mm. but it's also the economies of that's tricky because because the grid is there, it makes sense. If you had to build a grid for that, it wouldn't make sense. So, yeah. Anything else? Last question from my side. How many people in this room cannot speak Afrikaans at all? Oh, okay. Now I feel better <laughs> speaking English all <laughs> evening. <laughs> <laughs> I think the idea is that long term it will all be fracking, um, but it will take a while. So they've only last year, or maybe it was 2012, they've now lifted the embargo on exploring for that, but they haven't given any exploration licenses yet. So, you know, then, then you give the exploration license and then that takes another couple of years and then you can actually start doing it. So it's certainly not a short-term answer and that's why it's written as a medium to long. Uh, but in this short to medium, you will probably need to import gas or look in Mozambican gas or whatever. But the idea certainly is that in long term, that's it. You're going to, the crew will be your, your Texas. Yes. I don't want to open a door of wind, but on the note of fracking, are you positive or negative? Have you seen this recent movie that um, that was made about fracking in the States? Okay. I um, I'm trying to think now of a book, which is in fact the Ian McEwan book called Solar. Um, where he starts with this picture of saying this guy's sitting in the rainforest and I can't remember this properly you'll have to go and buy the book and read it but it's like this guy sitting in the forest and instead of drinking the water that's raining down on him he, he's discovered that if you cut down the tree you can get some sap out of the tree and you can drink that and that's a little bit like fracking to me um, you're sitting here, the sun is shining, the wind is blowing you've got all of this stuff happening which you can really get for free. Um, but now you've discovered that under this pristine Karoo part of our world, you can go and find stuff if you pump enough other things in there and so on. To me, to me personally, not as UV or not as whatever, I don't support fracking. Um, I just don't think it's necessary. And I think if you rethink the plans that we have at the moment, um, you can get away without that. But I think it's it's a debate. It's not a. It's my position. Yeah. There's only so many things to burn. So there's a. <laughs> true, true, and the thing is, what's always true. 
He said, yes, there's a lot of money to be made in fracking. There's a lot of work to be creating in fracking. There's a lot of employment. There's a lot of wealth. Um, you know, there's lots of good stuff about it. But, and it's very difficult to stop the momentum of such a thing once it's there. So it's better to stop it before it really starts and before all of and, and really say, no, this is probably not so good in the long term. And, and let's try and, and change direction before we go there. I read a book very recently about a chap I've never heard of by the name of W.A. Clark. And W.A. Clark, at about 100 years ago, was one of the top, he was either the first or the second richest man in America. There's some debate whether he was richer than, than Rockefeller or not. Have, has anybody in this room heard of W.A. Clark? And he made his fortune out of copper. Um, and lots of other things, but copper was his, his major fortune. And he discovered copper in a little town, all, all over the place, but there's one place that's sort of uh, where he started. It's a place called Butt, B-U-T-T-E, in Michigan or somewhere. And he's absolutely destroyed the world around that place. You cannot believe it. Um, so much so that to, to, to recover the environmental damage that's been done in that area will cost more than the fortune he made in his lifetime. Double, ten times over. But I mean, at the time, people didn't, I suppose you can say people didn't know. Um, and, and there's some way to, to understand that stuff happened because people didn't know. But there's no way you can now go out and say, oh, we didn't know. Now we know. Um, so we, so we can't use the same arguments we used 50 years ago and 100 years ago. It's, it's, a, it's a different paradigm. But if the long-term storage isn't solved, then fracking is going to be the option. I think fracking is going to happen. Yeah, it's, um, it is... And I don't want to open, I've got lots of backup slides here about stories <laughs> about base load versus peak load and so on. Um, but is storage really such a big problem? I don't think it is. Um, you know, three years, if, if somebody said to you five years ago that we're going to be building wind and solar farms by the gigawatts in South Africa three years from now, nobody would have believed it. I mean, poor Hermann Ulsner was trying to set up Darling Wind Farm since 19-something. And he spent his whole fortune and his whole life and his whatever on that bloody Darling Wind Farm. And, and, he, and, he, and, he, and he was stopped and whatever at every corner. Um, sometimes, I don't know if it's fortuitously, but the right decisions do get made. And I think, I, and I think in terms of this uh, REIPP, the right decisions were made. It took a long time, uh, but they were made. And I think the right decisions need to be made in terms of, of storage. However, looking at fracking, um, looking at the parties involved, looking at the money to be made out of it, I think it's going to happen in some way or another, whether any of us like it or not. But I think, I think there, is, there are storage solutions, and storage is not so expensive. If you take current costing for storage solutions, it's not that expensive. It's a question of which is the way you want to go. But if you, if you ask me to put my money on, on whether fracking is going to go ahead or not, unless something really drastic happens in terms of 
who's running the country and who's taking decisions, I would guess it is going to happen. Okay, on that high note, who, who has a... We certainly have reached a tipping point of energy. I think if, in my mind, if you look at how technologies evolve, um, things that were originally done on a grand scale by governments, even to people's personal domains, uh, previously transport would have been a train or um, based, you know, the computers were mainframes that you had to go and get a slot to go and sit at the thing, which eventually became personal. But I think energy will probably end up going that route as well. It becomes um, moves into people's personal domains. Mm. I forgot one last question. So was that slide that you put up with all the, the role players. Uh, do you know whether they consume more or less energy than the project is going to? <laughs> I think they generate a more hot air than, uh, yeah, that's a good, uh, good point. Gurus, <laughs> thank you very much. Hmm. It's most interesting. I'm sure there'll be a lot of discussion afterwards. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Why don't you?